So that said, go ahead and flip to John 20, excuse me, John 19. We'll be in John 20 next time. John 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 42, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll just walk through it together as been our custom. And then we'll pull out some application and points of consideration. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are filled with gratitude this morning because you have given us your Son, our Lamb King, who rules and reigns this very day. We are thankful for the cross, for the crucifixion, for the death of Christ, which forgives and cleanses. Help us, Holy Spirit, to see, to hear, to seek, and to understand. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. John 19, let's look at verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate being, of course, the governor at the time. They wanted to placate the leaders, so he decided to have Jesus beaten by whips, which would have had bone shards and perhaps other sharp rocks and such attached to it. Pilate wants to punish the man. He's not yet sold on whether or not Jesus should be crucified. He has not found him guilty, as we'll see. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. Probably Roman soldiers wore red robes, so this probably would have been a worn-out um, robe that they found that was more akin to the purple color. And they put it on him as a mock ceremony, essentially. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews! And to give him slaps in the face, as if it wasn't enough to take a beating, they slapped him in the face. Our Lord was slapped in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This is sort of a... They're, he's, they're, Pilate's placating the Jews. They want his death. He sees no guilt. It's sort of a funky trial is not it's unorthodox they're not following normal procedure so they beat him look i beat him you know here's your king right i have a crown of thorns on him a robe sort of he's making not only a mockery of jesus he's making a mockery of the jewish people because they did not have the best relationship they weren't buddies let's just say that jesus came out jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe pilate said to them behold the man Take note of that. Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Notice the chief priests and the officers are leading the way. The other synoptics highlight the crowds chanting. And that's not a contradiction. They were all chanting. But John is focusing on the, the main issue between the religious leaders and Jesus. He's already taught us the whole way through that there's been tension. And he's highlighting it yet again. Crucify, crucify. By the way, they're taking leadership in this. They, they're the ones, that they're, they're the bloodlusting leaders who want Jesus dead. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I, I find no guilt in him. I'm done with this charade. Go ahead, take him. The Jews answered him, verse 7, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Blasphemy was a death penalty um, violation and they are suddenly holy oh we well we have a law we we can't crucify him essentially what they're saying is well we would need to stone him that is god's prescription 
Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. More afraid of their law and the fact that he made himself out to be son of God. Son of God at this time would have been Caesar. That's a phrase reserved for Caesar. So now we not only have a blasphemer, because he doesn't care about that. Pilate doesn't care about the religious offense. He cares about the political offense. And as Christians, we, have, we don't divorce those things. They go together um, in God's jurisdiction, of course, and boundaries. But essentially, now he's scared. Son of God, wait, that's Caesar. Now we have a rival claim to kingship, a more solid form than what he has said before. So Pilate's afraid, and he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Where are you from? So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you? Rather pretentious, I'd say. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This is an example of what Paul says in Romans 13. Uh, Governors, authorities, they are given by God. But that doesn't mean they're automatically righteous. They're unrighteous too. Um, But Jesus makes it clear who has the authority ultimately, and it's God. And the one who has the greater sin, presumably the high priest he's talking about. Um, But perhaps all the religious leaders. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now they're going with the political affirmation some more. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, or Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, by the way, scholars have long pointed this out. You should know in verse 13 where it says he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. It's actually unclear who sat there. We don't, it, it probably is ambiguous on purpose, but the way the Greek language works, we don't know who sat. Probably John means to assume that Pilate put the scourged beating man on the judgment seat while he interrogated him, which would be a very provocative word picture because Jesus is truly the one in the judgment seat, despite the fact that he's on the receiving end of this injustice. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, he sat him down. Now it was the day, verse 14, the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Now, notice what he's already said once. Behold the man. And now he says, Behold your king. Note that. I'm going to come back to it. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? This is your king, guys. Why Should I crucify him? And then they seal the deal. This is the nail in the proverbial coffin. They said, We have no king but Caesar. So then, so he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross. Criminals had to carry their own judgment. Probably he carried the cross beam. Carried out to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Hebrew or Aramaic, Golgotha. There they crucified him, driving nails in his feet, nails in his hands, bloody, gruesome, 
horrific crucifixion was uh, established by the Persians. The Romans took what they learned from the Persians and they were master assassins. They perfected the art of making sure that you were suffering immensely. Sometimes the, it would have been, the Persians mostly did it on a pole. The Romans then came in and there, sometimes it was like a T, a capital T. Um, sometimes it's more in our understanding, a more modern version with the cross uh, where they would have put the cross beam up as well and then hoisted them up. Usually, if you've seen movies, you've seen a lot of times the cross is like elevated on their way up high. He probably would have only been a foot or two off the ground, historically. Um, and part of the reason is because there's an interaction where he's interacting with John and his mother. So that he would have been close enough to hear, it, it, you know, they wanted you to see this. They didn't want it up and ambiguous. They wanted you to see this. So they crucified him. And, verse 18, with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Jesus being, of course, the central focus. He is crucified as a rebel with these other men that were considered rebel, which we know from Luke, one repents is actually, and, and is saved. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. That's normal behavior. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Your crime is usually placarded up there. That was normal. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Interesting. All the known world. Jesus is the king of the world. He is posted there. And a lot of times the Romans were such savages with this. In order to suppress revolutionary activity, in order to... I mean, they had, they had 1984 before we had 1984. Um, they, they wanted you to see it, smell it. They wanted you to hear it. They wanted you to see every element and feel every element of this criminal died. When you disobey Rome, this is what happens. And you read the, you read the, um, the charge on, this, on the placard, on the, on the sign, and you know, don't do that because this is what happens to you. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Don't tell it like that. This is not what we wanted. They're trying to control even, even that. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. He's not going to succumb to their wishes. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's a biblical prophecy. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. There's a lot of beholding going on, which you'll see I'm going to pick up on in a minute. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciples, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon the branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when, he said, when Jesus had received the sour wine, that's the cheap wine. It's, you know, it's the natural light of beer. Uh, 
he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might not be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs, excuse me, yeah, the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, presuming they were, uh, assuming they were probably still alive. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. I have, we're going to focus on that. And he who has seen these, has seen, has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, They shall look on him who they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, if you remember from John 3, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Note that. There was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had, had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Behold the man. Has there ever been a more truer statement in history? A bloodied and beaten man, a real flesh and blood man, wearing a crown of thorns, a purple robe, standing before this bloodlusting crowd of Jewish leaders, these obstreperous and unruly Romans. Behold the man. Of course, Pilate, after um, inquiring some more, he brings Jesus out again and says, Behold your king. Behold your king. Now the reader is obviously left to conclude, what does it mean for Jesus to be a man? Well, for Jesus to be a man, he has come to be king. And what does it mean for Jesus to be king? Well, it means that he has come as a man, an Adam. He's come as an Adam. And this Adam, who has come and stood in the midst of the absolute wreckage of human history, does so with the intention of bringing the shalom of God to a disastrous situation. He has come to make all things new. Now the passage before us is rich with so many things we could cover, so many different angles, so many different things, but I'm just going to pull out a few things for your consideration. The first thing is this, it's really simple. Jesus Christ is King Adam II. He's King Adam II. There was a king first in the garden. His name was Adam, and he was King Adam I, but he rebelled. Now we have Jesus Christ, King Adam II. Now the irony and the paradoxes in this passage, are, they're just dripping. It's all over the place. He's the Passover lamb. That's what the hyssop branch is all about. Passover lamb who must be slain in order to atone for the sins of the world. This is a man who, on the cross, this living water gives thirsty people all the life, right? The water of life, he's found on the cross to be thirsty. He's empty. This thirsty man, he drinks again in his father's kingdom with the final cup of Passover when he says it is finished, which is to say the work of establishing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is now complete. When Jesus says it is finished, 
He doesn't mean that it's over in, in the sense that something was in place and now it's no longer in place. Rather, he's talking about bringing it to its appointed consummation. Everything goes to this moment. It's now established. The drink that he was supposed to enjoy in his father's kingdom, that was that moment. He drank that final cup of Passover, what we call the fourth cup. He is also the Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers, and now he has his special coat divided and gambled away. So the crime that Jesus is charged with is being king of the Jews. That's the crime. That's the penalty. And that tells us more truth than anything at Rome had ever done before. Pilate had no idea how much truth he was saying when he inscribed, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Now it's true. We have this moment. Israel, like in the days of Samuel, they rejected God as king, and because of it, they are going to suffer the consequences of an imperious Roman government. And of course, in fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus' legs are not broken. The bones of the lamb that were for the Passover meal were not to be broken according to God's law. This is our Lord, Jesus King Adam II. When you're looking at the slain, the slain lamb king who they have pierced, those who have eyes of faith will look on him like the bronze serpent and they will be healed, they will be saved. But those who scorn him, those who are not looking by faith, they are the ones who have the eyes of unbelief and they are judged and they are sentenced. Of course, who could forget that Jesus, the spotless lamb, is, the text says, buried in a tomb which was in a garden. John wants you to think of something here. He is Adam. He is Adam, after all. And the sword, if you recall, that stood outside of the Garden of Eden, Jesus took that sword on himself, died, so that the blessing of Eden would flow to the world. It's interesting that he's the first person to ever go in this tomb. And this tomb is in the garden. Jesus is the first person to ever go back to Eden to accomplish the worldwide blessing that God wants to accomplish. John is dripping. It's all over the pages of Scripture. John is yelling at us saying, Hey, pay attention. This tomb is in a garden. Later, he's going to be mistaken in the resurrection as the gardener. And he is the gardener. He's the cultivator of a new humanity, a new heavens, a new earth. The height of man's unruly rebellion is signified in, in Rome's tribute to this king. They paid tribute to Jesus by mocking him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, a purple robe around him from the Roman soldier. And there's a reason for this. It's a crown of thorns and not a crown of gold because fallen man, having been cursed with thistles and thorns, can only give to Christ the rotten fruit of their rebellious labor. Thorns, right? Thorns are a sign of frustration, a sign of sin, a sign of death. That's the best they can do. The best thing that fallen men can do to give to God is the very thistles and cursings that God gave to them. This Adam, in order to undo the effects of the first Adam, he goes under the sword, he goes back to the garden, and he goes into the garden not to bring us back there, but to take it to a new level, to take it to the grow, to grow it to the world, which was the intent in the first place. And now, what about the blood and the water? What about the blood and the water? Have you ever wondered about the blood and the water? Jesus is a temple. He's the temple, right? He's the living water that flows out of Eden, if you remember, the Garden of Eden had four rivers that flowed out of it. 
And that was a sign of the blessing going to the world. Adam and Eve were in the garden, but they were to go out of the garden and they were to cultivate, they were to grow it in, into worldwide blessing. Well, now Ezekiel has a vision of the temple and there's water that's rushing out of it. Jesus is not only the temple, he's the water. He's the living water flowing out of Eden, flowing out of the temple. And that water heals the nations. That's the whole point of it, the biblical imagery. And we ask why. Why is it that when the soldier thrust his lance into the side of Jesus, why did blood and water come out? Is this just a scientific thing? Because there, there, there is a sack of water around your heart. There, there's scientific stuff there. Or is there theological significance that we should think about? And probably, yes, mostly the latter. So why, why blood and water? Why does John take great care to explain this to us? Well, here's why. Because Jesus' life, remember, life, in, according to God's law, life is in the blood. It's signified of blood, right? Sacrifices, animal sacrifices, the blood. Hebrews tells us the same thing. Jesus' life is united with the healing of the nations, the water. His life is in the blood. He had to die, and it was united with the water that goes forth, the living water that blesses the nations. Those two concepts go together. He is completely emptied. He is completely thirsty so that we can be filled and satiated. That's the whole point. And it's the blood united together with the water only because Jesus' blood, only his death, is the very thing that can bring the healing water of salvation to the entire world. That's the point. So Jesus, he's the temple. He's the temple that's going to be destroyed, and in three days he would raise it up. That's back in the latter part of John chapter 2. This is the way of the temple. This is the way the temple was always supposed to function. The, the temple was supposed to be a place of healing, of sacrifice, of humility before God. And what did Jesus find when he came to the temple? It was polluted with unrighteousness, selfishness, the height of human arrogance. They had taken the blessing of God's presence in the world and they destroyed it. And they did the same thing with Jesus. The height of arrogance is to take the blessing of Jesus the temple and destroy him. But he said he would raise it up in three days. He is the immutable temple, not a temple made of rocks. He's a temple made of human flesh, and we are his temple. We are living stones, Peter tells us. So you and I, we're brought into this moment through the Lord's death. We're brought into it through baptism, which we celebrate, and the Lord's Supper. The communion elements you see here are all about this. This slain lamb is also the king. The only one who's worthy to open up the, the covenantal scroll of history in Revelation 5 is this lamb who becomes a lion. And yes, it is this man we are told to behold. He is the wounded lamb, no doubt. He is the victim of the world's hatreds, hatred. That, that's who Jesus was in this moment. But he's also the king who rules the world. See, the sign... The sign that was written by Pilate, it was written in all three major languages at the time. Jesus um, would have probably spoken Aramaic, which is sort of a dialect of Hebrew. Um, old, old Hebrew really wasn't as uh, popular at this time. You had Peter and others who would have spoken Greek. They would have known. And Latin, of course, was the language of, of Rome. So the, the world sees this beautiful sign. <laughs> 
this beautiful sign that he is the king of the Jews. But he's not just king of the Jews, he's king of the entire world. So this sign that was written in all three major languages at the time, it shouts with all courageousness and boldness the truth about him. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of the world, the king of the earth, the king of all nations. And the cross, this beautiful thing we celebrate, the cross is the enthronement. That's the enthronement of our Lord. That's the enthronement of our King. Now, I mentioned this already, but twice we're told to behold. Two times we're told, behold the man, behold the King, right? Why would, why would Scripture tell us to do that? Well, I'm going to give you a novel idea here, because we're supposed to. <laughs> we're supposed to behold Him. We're not reading this as it was, it was historical nonfiction or historical fiction. We are reading this and studying this so that all of you and I can behold him, so that, so that we may be immersed in the Lamb's blood and his water. So that's the Victory in Jesus song. That's why I picked it. He plunged me. This idea of being immersed. We are immersed in him. We're beholding him. And we're supposed to see what John is telling us to see in the passage. See him on the cross. See the sign. See what Pilate said to him. See the blood and the water coming out. See the Roman soldiers not breaking his legs, but see them thrusting the lance into his, his side. And the reason we need to be immersed in it is so that you and I can have comfort and you and I can have joy. That's the aim. That's Joy has uh, popped up several times in John's Gospel. You and I are supposed to have joy, to be happy in Christ, to be joy-filled. And so we must do it. We must behold Him. And then Jesus tells His mother to behold John, His son. He tells John, well, we assume it's John. We don't know. John was a wee lad. He was probably a teenager. He was the youngest of the disciples. John is told to behold his mother. Why? This beholding again. Why? Because the new birth is now taking effect. The new birth is now happening. This new creation is now being established. Jesus is going to go into the tomb and he's going to rest on the Sabbath. He's going to rest the way Adam was supposed to rest. Adam was supposed to have self-sacrificed himself. When Adam and Eve had their little problem, Adam should have taken Eve straight to God and said, my wife has sinned. Kill me, not her. That's what should have happened. But it didn't. Adam was given in too. He was responsible. He should have died. It was Adam and Eve that were supposed to, on their first day of existence, rest on the Sabbath. Their first day was God's seventh day. They were to rest, and they didn't. So now here's King Adam, who sacrificed for his bride. He's resting, he's dying. He's resting in the tomb on a Sabbath. And now what's going to happen, of course, after that? Well, he's going to arise on the first day. This new, He's going to arise to work in the Dominion Covenant on the new first day of the week. So we rest in Him and then we work. That's the beauty of it. And we must be born of the Spirit. We must be born of water. And when we're born in this manner, we're brought into the family of God. Think back to Nicodemus, the conversation about being born again. How can I enter my mother's womb again? That's, no, no, no. You're thinking in human terms, pure fleshly terms. Think about spiritual terms. Think about the new birth. That's what's happening on the cross when he's telling him to behold his mother and his mom to behold his son. They are brought into this new covenant family. They're born again. 
um, they're brought into the family. Who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Jesus says. Well, those who do the will of God. Those are my mothers. Those are my brothers. See, the death of Christ establishes the kingdom of Christ and not without a thousand consequences for you and I. This slain lamb king is not an inconsequential act. It is the action of God establishing his son as king and Lord. So we have a family now. We have the covenantal signs of baptism, water, and communion, the blood. We have those things. We have the new birth. But we also have the new reality of God's kingdom in the world. Don't pietistically look at the cross and only think of yourself. That's what many Christians do with the gospel. It's only about me and my salvation. It is about you and your salvation. But it's not just that. Your king is enthroned in this moment. He's not coming back to establish a kingdom. That was established there and then. It cannot be any more clearer. And all this means, of course, now we have the rival kingdoms that must acquiesce to this king. Right? That's the other side of this coin. The claims of, the claims of religion and the Jewish people and the state claiming supreme authority over all human affairs, all of that is unmasked. It's all disarmed. Colossians 2.15 says that these powers are disarmed. So there's one claim left. Pilate has no authority other than what's given him from God. The Jewish bloodlusting leaders, they have no authority. It's been, all of it's been disarmed. There's one claim left at the center of this passage in this moment, a claim that can never be rescinded, never be taken away. That is Jesus, the, la- the slain lamb. He is the king of the world. Amen. That is the main thrust of the gospel. That's why we call it the gospel of the kingdom of God. Don't take those terms and, and tear them apart. They go together. And that's a powerful message that throws the world into an uproar at every turn, right? That's the, and what we have to do, though, is reflect it. You and I have a job to reflect this gospel. We must reflect it. That's what beholding does. Do you want your life to reflect the gospel, children? Do you want your lives to reflect the gospel? If you do, you have to look to Christ. All of you. Me too. We have to look to Christ. Look to his life. Look to his beating. Look to the cross. Look to the blood and water that's flowing from his side as he fashions a new Eve from his better rib. You must behold him. In order to reflect him, we must behold him. Mirrors only reflect what they're looking at, right? That's what, that's you are a mirror of God's glory. And you can only reflect to the world what you're looking at. And it better be Christ. It better be him. And listen, um, one other thing. God does not justify the wicked. He, doesn't, he does not justify the guilty. The only way for God to bring reconciliation to humanity is through the cross. That's it. That, there has to be a legal basis for God to overlook your sin. He doesn't, he's not just you know, willy-nilly about things. Oh, you know, you had a boo-boo that day. You didn't sleep enough. Your, your, your sugar was low. You were clearly cranky. And so when you slandered that person or yelled at that person or were impatient or this, that, and the other, God's not looking at that and thinking, oh, it was a boo-boo. It was an accident. Oh, he just did that again or she did that. And, and no, no, no. God, 
Psalm 5, 5 says God hates all evildoers. So we have to reconcile this, this thing. He, he doesn't just haphazardly overlook our sins. Guess what G- God does? He deals with them. He deals with them in Jesus Christ. That's what it, how he does it. He deals with them in Christ. He deals with them in him crucified. So when you do sin, and when you do lose your temper, and when you do transgress the law of God in your life, God isn't just, oh, oh, well, he did that again. He's dealing with it in Christ. Those sins are paid for. When we confess them, we are healed. Of course, there's a wake behind it. But we must look to him. We must look to him. That's what you are to mirror. You are to remember the verdict of God and live in light of the verdict. You are made in the image of God. And, and one final thought, and we'll close. And what does it mean to be in the image of God? It means that you are put in a garden that belongs to God, but is in rebellion against him. You are put, that's the image of God. You and I are put in this garden world. God owns it. Jesus bought it, but it's in rebellion against God. And of course, Jesus is that. He was put in the garden in a world that was rebellion against God. They crucified him. He's the slain lamb king. That's what it means to be the second Adam. And you and I, you're in this garden world that belongs to the king. It's in rebellion against him. And therefore, we must behold him. We must proclaim him. And we must look to him. And that's John chapter 19. Let's pray. Um, Father, we, we just glorify you this morning. We glorify you and your sovereignty. And thank you for sending your spirit to inspire John to, to tell this story in this manner so that it would grab our attention, so that it would, it would not only just be evocative, that, that our emotions would be stirred, but that our mind would be shaped right, that we could think clearly and straight, that we could see the pattern set before us in the life of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, and in the resurrection of Jesus. God, it's so clear in your text. You have established him as king, and, and, and we rejoice in that. We find it to be joyful, immensely satisfying, knowing that you're the king and we don't have to try to be on the throne. So would you teach us? Teach us to behold the man, to behold the king, to behold one another, as we are the family of God in this new birth, that, that we would constantly, by your Spirit, seek to reflect this gospel of the kingdom. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.